Thank you, Ted, for the many necessary reminders we have of our need for a Savior, His goodness and His grace, and the blessing that we have to worship Him in the midst of these difficult times. Well, a special thank you for everybody who labors so that we can um, proclaim the word of the Lord for Peter who brings this music and Ted who ministers to us in prayer for uh, Kat and David Goh who are helping with the AV and Edwin and Priscilla who are helping us this morning. Um, But a special greeting to all our dear loved ones. It's been a joy to be texting with you. It's not as good as seeing you face to face, but you are near and dear to our hearts and we're actively praying for you and praying for the time and moment when we can see each other face to face and enjoy real fellowship as opposed to to virtual fellowship. Well, this week, Julie and I, like many of you, I'm sure, watch the news. That's what you do when there's no NBA and uh, there's not a whole lot going on and uh, you're in the shelter in place and there's a pandemic going on with a rising death count. You watch the news. And uh, I would say the news has never been quite so compelling. And as Julie and I watched the news on a few occasions, there were a couple of things that jumped out to us this week. And one of them was uh, one of the many interviews with, with Dr. Anthony Fauci about this coronavirus pandemic in America. And as the death count continued to rise this week in our nation... One of the concerns that was raised by one of the interviewers was how COVID-19's victims are not necessarily limited to just the old and the weak. In fact, increasingly we've seen over this past week baffling scenarios where there will be a married couple in their 30s and one will pass away, both will test positive for COVID-19, one from a human standpoint, inexplicably passes away and the other is left. Not dissimilar to the psalm we read this morning. And the questions that were raised to Dr. Fauci and to other medical experts around the world is, how can this be? Why are the victims who are falling prey to this not necessarily following the typical pattern that we see with viruses, which usually typically kill and remove either the aged or the weak or the infirm or little children? Why is one person left standing and why is one taken away? And the medical experts, as they've reviewed this, have basically come and said, we we don't know, we can't explain. And it was interesting to hear, in particular, Dr. Fauci give some very wise counsel as he was asked this question. He stated, we need to be humble. We need to be humble. And he was talking in particular about infectious disease specialists and scientists. And how over the history of the world and the history of these epidemics, that sometimes, or many times, our best insights and our best analysis and our best assessments fail and fall short. And we can't explain what's really going on should not be proud. We need to be humble. And this, in particular, got me thinking as I saw this episode and saw what was happening and heard 
the medical experts' explanation, but in particular this statement, we need to be humble. It got me thinking, what makes me, Mark Chen, think that I am above being touched by this coronavirus? What makes me think that what I need to do for the next few weeks and my primary concern is just getting through until all of this blows over? What is it that makes me think that my family and I or the people in our church who, by God's grace and praise the Lord so far, no one has been taken from us and no one so far has tested positive for COVID-19, but what makes me presume on the Lord to think that we're any better than the rest of the population, that we're any better than Italy or New York or Louisiana at this point in time, what makes us think that we're above being taken? It made me ask myself the question, am I ready to go? Are Julie and the boys taken care of? Am I ready for whatever God chooses to do in my life and in the life of this church? Have I made provisional plans for Peter and Ted of who's going to fill the pulpit next week? It's a different way of thinking, but at the heart of it is a question. Am I ready to go? Am I ready to go to be with the Lord? And at times when there are many deaths, it's easy to think about survival and how to avoid getting hurt. But sometimes we have to ask the bigger question of ourselves. Well, today is Palm Sunday, and it's the beginning of Passion Week, as Ted alluded to. And it's a time that's set apart by the church to remember and celebrate the historic week that took place some 2,000 years ago, when God's Holy Son, Jesus Christ, willingly and humbly went up to Jerusalem to die, to give his life on a Roman cross in obedience to God's will and in obedience to God's word and love for the Father to go as a holy sacrifice for undeserving sinners like you and I. And during that week, if you look at the Passion accounts, so to speak, and you go through the Gospels, all four of which document in detail from eyewitness accounts, what was going on. There's one thing that comes through loud and clear. Jesus was ready to go. Jesus was ready to go to the cross. Jesus was ready to do whatever his father asked of him. Jesus was ready to give his life for undeserving sinners like you and I, out of love for the father and out of love for us. And part of that testimony as we consider the testimony of Jesus' readiness to go is the testimony that comes out loud and clear. He was ready to go even though he did not deserve to die on a cross. And yet, in his heart, and in his life and in his actions, Jesus went to the cross and he did so humbly, he did so willingly, he did so intentionally. He was ready and prepared to go, not by accident, but by choice. And he did so 
during what is called Pesach or Passover. The Jewish holiday that is going to be celebrated beginning this Wednesday evening. And it's the Jewish holiday and feast commanded by the Lord where lambs were to be slaughtered and eaten by God's people in celebration of the Exodus. When the Lord, by a series of ten plagues, brought his children out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt so that they might serve and worship him as the only true and living God. This morning, we're going to consider how the Lord used ten plagues and a Passover feast to prepare his children to go. And then in turn to prepare his son to go to be with him. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 11. And as we walk through God's preparation of his people through his acts of judgment and through his plagues. I think we'll see this morning that God has left this word for us. For us to consider in our own hearts, are we ready to go? And what are the provisions that God has given us? To prepare us to go to be with him. Exodus 11. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. The Lord said to Moses. Yet one more plague. Or yet one plague more. I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go. He will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people. That they ask every man of his neighbor. And every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold, jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt. In the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord. Moses is saying this to Pharaoh. About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt. And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne. Even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, And all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt. Such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel. Either man or beast. That you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he, that's referring to Moses, went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, 
You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this matter you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt. This day for you shall be a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Chapter 11 begins again with Moses hearing the word of the Lord. The Lord speaking to his prophet Moses, explaining to Moses what he is about to do. Yet, one more, one plague more, I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. So far there have been nine brutal plagues, each one worse than the last. And each one targeting a specific God of Egypt to show that that God is helpless and impotent and a fraud. And the last and ninth plague up until this point is a plague of palpable darkness where for three days there is a thick darkness over the land so that the people can't go out of their homes or their houses. A sort of a shelter in place that is happening here because of the plague. And I suspect early on by plague number two and three, everyone, including the Hebrews, had probably had enough. I know for many of us, the sense, especially with young members of our home, that after two or three days of being locked in the house, we've had enough. But this has gone on for some time. And it's a dark time, and it's a dark season. And the hint and smell of death is everywhere. And yet God carries it out for a full nine plagues, and there's still one more to go, he tells Moses. And certainly one of the lessons I believe God is showing to his people, and he wants them to remember. I'm sure there were questions at time. Lord, isn't one plague enough? Lord, three or four. Pharaoh will get the message. But the Lord has a plan. And he set it out beforehand. And he's explained to Moses, this isn't going to go over easy. Pharaoh will refuse. But in the end, I will win and I will deliver my people. But the Lord here, as he walks his people through this, now and forever after, whenever they will remember and do the Passover feast, he's showing them that there are no shortcuts to set us free from the bondage of our pride 
and our idolatry and our sin. The things that hold us back from the Lord. The things that hold us back from serving the Lord. And the things that hold us back from being with the Lord. There are no shortcuts and there are no easy remedies. This is something that Bill Gates mentioned recently over the last few weeks. As everybody wanted to have it both ways. Can we not get over this pandemic? And can we not still work? And can we not still go to the store? And can we not still go to the beach? And can we not still do the things that we need to do as Americans to keep our economy going and to keep our way of life going? And you'll recall Bill Gates' statement that the sooner we take the strong medicine, the sooner we can recover and move onwards. There's no shortcut for serious problems. And certainly with the Lord, what he points out is there is no shortcut when it comes to our bondage to sin and our sinfulness. The testimony of Exodus, the testimony of God's Word, and the testimony of the cross, where God's own Son was crushed and crucified for our sins. We need nothing less than very, very strong medicine. And that strong medicine as we are shown in Exodus, and what points to the cross, is nothing less than the righteous judgment of God's word against our sin. And that, brothers and sisters, is what these plagues are all about. And that's what Moses has been explaining to Pharaoh. And this is the lesson that is left for the children of Israel for the years to come. That brings us to our first point. The judgment of God's word shows us that he is greater than our pride and our idolatry and our sin. The judgment of God's word shows us that he is greater than our pride, our idolatry, and our sin. And he is the medicine and the strong medicine that we so desperately need. Now I bring this up and this seems like an old-fashioned text. But brothers and sisters, so often in the counseling room, what we hear so often are men and women who are discouraged at why they can't conquer their sin quicker. Why isn't this over already? I have prayed, I have asked the Lord for forgiveness. Why am I not free from sin? Why are we not moving along? Why can't I sing the hymns and run the ministry? It's interesting to meet with the elders and to pray with the elders for the people of the church and for us to consider humbly before the Lord. How some of these things, even in the best of our lives, take a fair amount of time. Why is that? Because what we need so desperately, brothers, is not a quick fix or a microwave popcorn remedy. What we need is the hand of the Lord to come in and do a mighty work in our lives. And to relieve us and set us free from the bondage of sin. And from the beginning, the Lord makes it clear to everyone that Each of these plagues and all of these plagues together, they're not a series of random natural disasters. These plagues begin and end with His Word. They come directly from His outstretched arm. And they are very specifically and quite literally God's great acts of judgment against the pride and idolatry and sin of Egypt. They're targeted. They're specific, they have purpose, and they have meaning. And very much so, they discriminate. They are God's acts of judgment.
If you have your Bibles, please turn back with me to Exodus 6, verse 6. Exodus 6, verse 6. And this is the beginning before some of the plagues start to come out. And God already beforehand explains to everyone what he's about to do. And he says in Exodus 6, verse 6, and he's talking to Moses, Say therefore to the people of Israel, he's letting the children of Israel know this is going to be a long haul, and your life is going to get worse, and things are going to be harder before they get better. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Okay, the Lord's making it clear. Number one, who he is. Number two, what he's going to do under no uncertain terms. And I will deliver you, deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you. The Lord's setting it up. He's going to save them. But how is he going to save him? Excuse me, how is he going to save them? And I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. With these words, God shows everyone these judgments have come to set them free from the bondage of sin and slavery. These acts of judgment are necessary, and they come directly from the hand of the Lord. But he also shows the children of Israel to give them hope in the face of difficulty. You'll recall that their lives get much bigger at the beginning of these plagues than they were before the plagues came. The Lord makes clear here that the divine purpose and end of his acts of judgment are not primarily pain and punishment. Yes, there will be pain and punishment. God will act justly against sin. But the end and the purpose in love for these judgments is the deliverance and redemption of his people. And what they're going to need is they're going to need faith to trust that God is true to who he is and his word. As they wait for these acts of judgment to do the work that's necessary and that's right to set them free and to redeem them. These acts of judgment are given so that they might be free to rightly know God and to rightly go with Him as the Lord of their lives. God has a much bigger plan, brothers and sisters, than alleviating our pain and our difficulties. God's agenda is to set His people free from sin and pride and idolatry and the things of this world so that they can know Him and so that they can go to be with Him as their Lord. And in verse 2 and 3 of chapter 11, God shows Moses and us the initial effects of His divine judgment, of His strong medicine for Egypt and His strong medicine for His people. The Egyptians have been humbled. They have begun to fear the word of the Lord. And they begun to surrender their pride and their prerogatives to the word of the Lord. Verse 3, And the Lord gave the people, those are the Hebrews, favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of his people. Before, when all of this starts, you'll recall, 
the Egyptians held God's people and God's messenger and God's message in contempt. They were a joke. These are slaves. These are the low-class immigrants who do our dirty work, who clean our kitchens, who deliver our children, who build our structures and our granaries. Who listens to them or their God? But after several plagues, things have become very different. They now fear God's message. They now fear God's messenger, and they now fear God's people. And they see them as worthy and deserving of their silver and gold, the very best of Egypt. And this is what God's strong medicine does in our lives. And this is what plagues and near-death experiences do in our lives. They show us who is really worthy of our silver and gold. They show us what life is all about and what is truly worthwhile. They show us who is worthy of our best and our all. We have to ask ourselves as we consider this, brothers and sisters, in these past days, what is the increasing testimony of our lives? What have we learned from the past two weeks? Who is worthy of all our silver and gold? Who and what is worthy of our very best? The best of our time, the best of our effort, and the best of our worship. As we see these incidents where young people and old are taken away at the drop of a hat, some of them where their family members do not even have an opportunity to say goodbye to them. We realize we cannot take our silver, we cannot take our gold, we cannot take our education, we cannot take our careers, and we cannot take our degrees with us to the hospital. Who is worthy of our best and who is worthy of being feared. Well, we're told in the Proverbs and the Psalms that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And there's nothing like a plague to help us consider what we really should be afraid of. But here's the flip side, brothers and sisters. When we realize who is worthy of our best and our all, like the Apostle Paul, like King David, like Matthew the tax collector, leaving everything behind to be with him is not a fear, it's a joy. And this brings us to our second point for this morning. The judgment of God's word shows that our lives belong to God. The judgment of God's word shows us and reminds us that our lives belong to God. So we read through the Old Testament and the New Testament too. The testimony of the word of the Lord is that all of life is a precious and costly gift from the Lord. Life, my life and yours and the lives of those around us are not to be taken for granted, regardless of the color of skin, the age, the disability, or the talent. And so what we read in God's Word and God's law is that God very early on, Genesis 9-5, He makes this clear to His people. 
All life is precious because all life is created by God in His image and all life is a gift from God. And therefore, the Lord always requires of His people a life for a life. If you take a life, if you waste a life, if you defile a life, the Lord is going to require of us nothing less than a life in return. Because ultimately, every life belongs to our Creator. And this is a fundamental principle of God's Word from Genesis through Revelation. You will see it over and over again. This is what binds up the law of Moses. As far as the horizontal relationships, this is what binds up, in many ways, the Sermon on the Mount. It's a fundamental principle of God's Word, brothers and sisters, that when times are good and everything's going well, that we frequently ignore, both in the church and outside. And we saw it even at the beginning of the shelter in the home mandate. The attitudes of, this is my life. Who are you to tell me what to do? Who are you to tell me not to be in a beach? Who are you to tell me to wear a mask? Who are you to tell me what to do? This is not my problem. Until someone comes onto my bus and coughs and doesn't cover their mouth. And then later people on that bus pass away from a virus that we cannot contain or understand. Suddenly it's everybody's problem. But as Kevin Al reminded us in our Logos class two weeks ago, we understand this when it comes to the issue of viruses and pandemics. We're very reluctant to admit this when it comes to our sin. And yet the Lord shows us from His Word that sin is just as devastating and just as destructive, not only to us, but to those around us. And that God takes our sin very seriously, and He takes the effects of our sin on those around us very seriously. And with His Word and His plagues, the Lord asks of all of us, What have you done with this sacred and precious life that I have given you? What have you done with these sacred and precious lives that I have placed in your care? Be it the lives of your friends, be it the lives of our spouses, be it the lives of our children, be it the lives of of our fellow members. And for the lives that we have stolen, for the lives that we have defiled, for the lives that we have enslaved, and for the lives that we have wasted, the word of the Lord promises a divine and just reckoning, a life for a life that culminates in the final judgment of death from the hand of the Lord. And this is what the Lord warns Pharaoh. And he warns Pharaoh of this right from the beginning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus 4. And we'll look at verse 22. This is the Lord talking to Moses. He says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. You think this is personal to the Lord. 
I myself. And this was the Lord's message from the beginning. And it's a message to Pharaoh, but it's also a message to all men. That we are accountable to the Lord. Not only for what we do with our lives, but also what we do with the lives of others. We are, brothers and sisters, our brother's keeper. And in verse 4 through 9 of chapter 11, Moses explains to Pharaoh that his account with the Lord after these nine plagues has finally come due. The Lord has been merciful. The Lord has been gracious. At any moment in time, the Lord has said, I could have wiped you out with my plagues, but he has not. And this, of course, is not only for Pharaoh's benefit, but this is for the benefit of the other Egyptians, as we'll later see, and also for the children of Israel. But now Moses explains in verses 4 through 9, the Lord is going to call that account due. He's coming for Pharaoh. And as we read that section, we read what the Lord says in those verses in verse 4. The Lord says to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Midnight, about midnight or around midnight, I myself... He uses the personal pronoun in the Hebrew. I myself, I personally, will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing like the heartbreak and sorrow over the death of a loved one, over the death of a child, over the death of someone near to us, to wake us up and to bring us face to face with the Lord, and to hold us accountable for what we have done with the life and the lives God has given us. Some 20 years ago, while I was in medical practice, my medical partner nearly lost his daughter. She had an aneurysm, and she had come into the medical clinic to visit her father. And suddenly, she stopped speaking. I remember standing there with her father as her father said to her, Stop joking and stop messing around. Wake up. He thought that she was his young teenage daughter just playing. And it wasn't long after she was rushed to UCLA Hospital. And it wasn't long after she had neurosurgeons working on a brain aneurysm. And I remember sitting with him that evening and taking him food and sitting in the hospital while his daughter was being operated on. And I remember a long time after that, as we sat in our office and things were difficult in our workplace and things were uncertain in our workplace, And things in our workplace did not seem to be fair or good. And I remember my medical partner reminding me. And he said, Mark, when you've nearly lost a child, these things are small potatoes. There's nothing, brothers and sisters, like death to bring us face to face with our maker and to set our priorities straight and to remind us That one day we will give account to the Lord for the entirety of our lives. That He will evaluate, not us. 
And what will he find? Wood, hay, and stubble? Or will he find silver and gold in the heavenly kingdom that will last forever? And the test and the testimony that comes were we people who listened to his word and followed his path of salvation? Or did we harden our hearts repeatedly to his warnings to us? And did we continue living for the things, the small things of this world? Well, that brings us to our third and final point for this morning. The judgment of God's word separates and saves those who belong to him by faith. The judgment of God's word separates and saves those who belong to him by faith. The Lord had shown very clearly to Pharaoh and to the children of Israel that all of life belongs to him. It's not ours. It's for God to choose what he will do with our lives. But then in a separate way, he shows that there are those who belong to him by faith and who will live and live with him. And there are those who also belong to him by virtue of the life he has given, who will be set apart for death and judgment. And as we come to verse 7, this is what the Lord makes clear to Pharaoh. He makes clear to Pharaoh that this last plague of death will not touch everyone. As the Lord himself is bringing judgment and death on Egypt in payment for what they have taken from him, the Lord will also be providing a supernatural protection and a supernatural way of salvation that will visibly separate those who belong to him by faith and those who don't. It's going to separate those who are marked for life and those who are marked for death. It's going to separate those who hear and obey the Lord by faith and those who have hardened their hearts to his word. And everyone will see and everyone will know that it is the Lord who makes this distinction between life and death. Not rulers, not kings, not wealth, not fame, and not power. This is the point that's being made when he says in verse 7, But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel. And this is happening at the same time that a great cry of sorrow is going out among the Egyptians as they discover that the firstborn of everything in their homes and their household has been taken from them and has been stricken directly from the hand of the Lord. Now, brothers and sisters, we look at this and say, Ah, Old Testament mythology, old stories with lessons and principles. But is that really the case? What are we seeing now? What is the power of wealth and fame and education to protect us from plagues and from death? We even think back of what happened earlier this year as Kobe Bryant was taken from us in a helicopter crash. And how people were astounded and humbled and amazed. And many of the athletes decided to put their houses in order and ask for forgiveness and take short accounts and reconcile with others. Baffled. Why? Because someone like this, with everything that the world has to offer, should be able to live to a ripe old age. Yet we see when the Lord calls our account due, when the word of the Lord has spoken, there is nothing in this world that can protect us and that can save us from the hand of the Lord and His judgment. As we come to Exodus 12... 
The Lord chose the only thing that can save us from His judgment. And that is the Lord Himself and His plan of salvation. And this is what all these plagues have been pointing to. And this is what all these plagues have been preparing the children of Israel for, that they would appreciate that salvation does not come from the things of this world. Salvation comes from the Lord alone. And that salvation is something, brothers and sisters, that we don't deserve. We all owe the Lord a life. We all owe the Lord many lives when we think of how we have treated one another and how we have served Him. Yet the Lord in His mercy and grace has shown us we don't deserve it. And yet in love, He has provided a way of salvation. And in Exodus 12, He begins to unfold for the first time the details of this plan of salvation. And it begins not with an imperative, it begins with an indicative. It begins not with a command, okay, do this list of ten things and you'll be okay and you'll be saved. Or just get a little bit better in your Christian walk and you'll be saved. Or just try a little harder and you'll get out of this situation. It begins with a proclamation of good news. It begins with a proclamation of good news that the Hebrews are no longer slaves to Egypt and they now belong to the Lord Not because of anything that they've done, but everything because of what the Lord has done. Exodus 12.1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. In the ancient Near East, your time, your calendar, and your life were set by your gods and your ruler. Or the gods of the ruler who had conquered you. This is what set your schedule. This is what set your labor. This is what set when you began your work and when you stopped your work. For us, it's our careers and our children. But in the ancient Near East, it was the gods of the one who ruled over you. And as slaves in Egypt, the Hebrews' time, their calendar, their life had been set by Pharaoh and his gods. But with these words, the Lord explains to Moses and Aaron, there is a new beginning that is here. You are slaves no longer. And the Lord's salvation has come, and it has separated the Hebrews from the ruler of Egypt, from his gods, and from their lives in Egypt. There is a before and after. They now belong to the Lord. And their time and their life and their calendar and their new year is now set by the word of the Lord. And it's set by the God who has saved them. Why? Because of the Lord's great acts of judgment against sin. Because they are redeemed. And they must now begin to start thinking, not as slaves of Egypt, but as children of the Lord. Children of the Lord who by faith listen and obey the word of the Lord and not the word and rule of Pharaoh. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the earliest examples of putting off and putting on. What Paul alludes to in walking the Christian life in Ephesians that we've been walking through. You're to no longer in Romans think of yourselves as slaves to sin. You belong to the Lord. You've been purchased by the blood. God's judgment has set you free. 
The curse that He has dealt His Son has set you free from pride and idolatry and sin. Your Savior is greater than your pride and your idolatry and sin. Set your hearts and your minds on things above. Put off the old man. Why? Because God has claimed you for Himself. And what follows in verses 4 through 11 are the Lord's commands to His people that provide for them a way of salvation that will deliver them from God's righteous judgment against their sin. It's what's known as the Passover feast. And it's a way of salvation where God Himself provides a substitute for the life His justice requires. And it's a way of salvation that is received by faith And that sets people apart by faith. If you look in those verses, in verse 4 through 11, every man of the congregation of Israel is commanded to take an unblemished one-year-old male lamb. You're familiar with this. And they're to take it for their household, and they're to do so on the tenth day of this new month that has been set by the word of the Lord. And they're to keep this lamb for four days. That lamb will become a member of the household, familiar to their children. And on the 14th day of this month, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel, verse 6, shall kill their lambs at twilight. And verse 7, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night. Roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. And he goes on to mention how they will eat all of it. And then in verse 11, the Lord specifies not only what they are to do, but the way they are to do it. And we see as always with the Lord, His way of salvation. It's not just what you do, brothers and sisters. It's the spirit and the way in which you do it. It's not just the money that we bring for our offering. It's the way in which we do it. It's not the way in which we serve one. It's not what we do to serve one another. It's the way in which we do it. In verse 11, he says, In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. Why? Because by faith, you are ready to go to be with your new Lord. Brother asked me recently, what does living by faith look like? What does living by faith look like? The Lord here shows His people as He provides for them a way of salvation. In beauty and in grace and in mercy, the Lord is so good. He doesn't just tell us what to do. He doesn't say, okay, this is what you've got to do. Just go and do it. The Lord graciously takes us by our hands. And He shows us, in sweetness and kindness, exactly the way in which we're to follow in His footsteps. He shows us what living by faith looks like. It looks like this. Listening and obeying the Lord with urgency. Listening and obeying the Lord with urgency. Doing all that He commands. Being ready at all times to leave everything to follow Him. The Lord was preparing the children of Israel. They were going to have to leave everything. 
They were not even going to be able to take leavened bread. They were going to have to get out of town quick, ready to go eat this meal in the evening time, ready to run with urgency, but also ultimately with faith. Why would they be able to do this? They could only do it if they believed that the Lord alone was able to save them from the judgment they deserved. They could only do this if they believed that the Lord was able to save them and that He would keep His word. Brothers and sisters, this is the faith that sets apart those who will be saved and those who will be destroyed. And the Lord says in summation of this, He says, it is the Lord's Passover. And He makes the point that this belongs ultimately to Him and that this is His gift and that this is His path of salvation that comes from the Lord. No work of man. Lest you think by going and doing these things and offering this sacrifice that you're doing some work to save you. This is the Lord's Passover. And in verse 13 He says, the blood shall be a sign for you. He doesn't say, this is a sign for the Lord. He says, this is a sign. The blood will be a sign for you. What blood? The blood that was taken from this lamb that was slain as a substitute for the life that you owed me. The blood from the lamb that was provided ultimately from the Lord. The blood that was placed on the doorpost. Then he says, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt, this blood will be a sign for you. And with that statement, the Lord speaks volumes of a good news and a gospel. He points out to the Israelites, they deserved to lose their firstborn just like all the Egyptians. They were not better. And in fact, if they rejected the word of the Lord like Pharaoh, and if they rejected the word of the Lord like other Egyptians, they would be like all of the Egyptians. They would not belong to the Lord. They did not deserve better. This blood will be a sign for you. Salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is given by grace. Salvation is a mercy and a gift from the Lord where He provides a substitute and a life, and He provides a way to pay for you. So that his judgment will fall upon his lamb rather than you. Brothers and sisters, the blood is a sign for you. That there are only two types of people in this world. Those who are covered by the blood of the lamb and those who are not. At the end of the day in Egypt... There were only these two types of people. Those who by faith were ready to leave everything behind to be with God. As their Lord and as their Savior. And those who were not ready to go. Begs the question, brothers and sisters of each of us. Are we ready to go? 1400 years later. Jesus The Holy Son of God during the feast of the Passover. As probably 250,000 lambs as Josephus says were being slain in the temple. 
In the path leading down from the temple where they slaughtered the lambs, people described as a river of blood. Jesus at this time celebrated the Passover feast with his disciples. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant that is given for you. And this is my body that is broken or given for you. Do this in remembrance for me. First, he prepared his disciples for a salvation that was to come. A salvation that would come from the blood of a lamb. But this lamb was no animal. This lamb was the son of God. And after he had prepared them for what was to come, he himself went to the cross. And on that cross, God the Father crushed and pierced his own son. And he shed his blood as judgment against the sin of his people. And he did so to save and set apart a people of faith who would be delivered from a judgment that they rightly deserved. Brothers and sisters, we are going to be celebrating that this Friday, on Good Friday. But as we consider this and what God has done, For those who by faith stand under the blood of the Lamb, there is great hope. God's point to the children of Israel and to Moses, as he talked about setting a new beginning and a new month, is that the best is yet to come. And that best is to be with God in a way that we could not be while we were still in the bondage of our pride and our sin and our our idolatry. But it also, brothers and sisters, comes as a challenge. Jesus shows us that there is only one who can conquer our pride and our idolatry and our sin. Jesus shows us that there is only one to whom our lives truly belong. Jesus shows us that there is only one who can save us. He confronts us, even in this day and age, with this challenge. Are we ready, by faith, to leave everything behind, to be with the one who loves us and who gave his life to set us free? Many years ago, I was privileged to have some dear friends They were a husband and they were a wife. They had been incredibly successful. They had made incredible amounts of money. They had lived in the best homes. And then the Lord saw fit to take it all away from them. And the Lord saw fit to give the wife cancer. And the years that followed, obviously for that couple, were not easy. But during that time, the wife was brought to a saving relationship with the Lord. She was brought to repentance, the faith of her youth. And to realize that all the distractions of this world had taken her away from the Lord. And that what she needed at this time more than anything else was a Lord and Savior. The tragedy, of course, was that her husband did not respond in a similar fashion. But he instead devoted his life and his time to pursuing once again the wealth and riches of the world that had previously made him great. 
And I recall being with that couple and I recall his wife begging him, begging him to say, we don't need the money, we don't need the lifestyle. We can live together and be happy. Come back to the church, come back to me and let's walk away from this and be with the Lord. And the husband was unable to do so. And I recall receiving that phone call when the account came due and hearing a voice on the end of the phone telling me that my friend at the age of 50 had dropped dead of a heart attack while trying to do a sales deal in Germany. Big oil deal and real estate deal. But what was it worth at the end of the day? His wife would go on, obviously, to outlive him. And she eventually would succumb to her cancer. And I remember being at her bedside during those months for a short period of time in UCLA hospital and then at her home. And I recall the joy and the sweetness of our time together. And I recall the last time that I spent with her. I had no idea that the Lord was going to take her away. I knew she was dying. But we spent this time together and the joy and the sweetness and the brightness in her life. And before I left that evening, she gave me a big hug and a big smile. And the way it was, I thought I was going to see her again. And of course, I will see her again. But the Lord shortly after took her away to glory. And I look at those two lives and I say, what a difference between those two lives. One gripped with cancer and a husband intent on doing everything that the world offered and yet filled with joy and goodness because it was a life that belonged to the Lord by faith. And another life that heard the same news, that made the same profession, and yet so enamored with the things of this world that he could not stop until the Lord called his account due. Brothers and sisters, in the days ahead, my prayer, of course, is that the Lord will protect us all and our families and that we will be able to resume this ministry. But we're not guaranteed of that. And none of us are better than any of the other folks who the Lord has seen fit to take home. And we must ask ourselves the same question. Are we indeed ready to go? These plagues, what has happened is a gift from the Lord to come face to face with Him, to evaluate what's most important in our lives and in our families, to burn the wood, hay, and stubble, and to hang on to what's precious and true. And the only thing that's precious and true that will last is the Lord and His Word. And I say this is a burden, brothers and sisters, because there are a number in our midst who are members who I am concerned for. You profess that Jesus Christ is Lord, but the testimony of your life is that you belong to something or someone else. And so I plea with you as we think of the testimony of the Lord's Word. Today is the day of repentance. We don't know how long we have. The Lord may take us with COVID-19, but He could take us just as easily with a car accident or a heart attack. He has been kind to us, brothers and sisters. He's been merciful. He has been patient. And He has given us ample time to turn to Him. He alone can save us. He alone can give us the faith we need. He alone can come into our lives and dismantle the pride and the idolatry and sin that holds us back from serving Him. 
For those of you, you know I'm talking to you. Do not delay and do not be like Pharaoh. Instead, come under the blood of the Lamb. Place your faith in Him. And get on your knees and just ask Him to give you the salvation you so desperately need. So that your profession of faith can in fact become a confession of faith. That you belong indeed to the Lamb who died for you. Close in prayer. Lord Jesus, what a Savior and what a salvation. Thank you for dying in our place and taking the blows that we so rightly deserve. Lord, this day, would you help us and give us the faith to put first things first, to do as you command, to listen to what you have to say with soft hearts, and to prepare our hearts and to be ready to go to be with you, and to do so not with fear but with joy, because you are our Savior, the one who loves us and died for us, and because there is no one like you. In your name we pray. Amen.